What up, y'all? I'm Brendan Whitted, and I'll be your host on this episode of Politics Aside, the politics podcast on the That's Black Male podcast network. As always, I'm joined by D.C. litigator Edward Williams II and Florida prosecutor Adrian Mood. We ask that on whatever platform you're listening, you please rate, review, subscribe, follow. Without further ado, let's get to it. What is good, man? What is good? It's 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 been a minute. It's been about a week and change. It's probably the longest we've gone without recording. So it's been a second since we 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 hopped on the mic, but we got a chance to meet in real life in person. So, but it's good to connect with my boys again, man. Ed, how you doing, bro? Folks? I'm feeling pretty good, man. Uh, look, we are we are uh, out here. Um, you know, the coronavirus is still with us, but uh, <laughs> and and it seems like the. Uh, at least the college students who are going back uh, decided that it's better to party uh, while you still can. Um, and <laughs> so that's an interesting decision. Um, as we're seeing at UNC and the University of North Georgia and a host of other places where they- Yeah, don't, I'm about to say, don't start, don't start yeah. in North Carolina, man. This is I'm, just saying, no, I'm just saying, no, I'm just saying. It's just, uh, they, they party at heart. But, um, but, you know, but, but the, on the upshot, this week is the Democratic National Convention, which I know we're going to spend a lot of time talking about today. Um, which is this is my playoffs, man. Like this is like the DNC <laughs> and the RNC. Like these are my playoffs. Like my Super Bowl. But you do realize the actual NBA playoffs have started. Okay, I hear that, that on the same day, no less. I heard there's something like that going on in the sports world. But in my world, this is the playoffs. This is what's happening right now. There's nothing like neglecting your loved ones when the playoffs start. <laughs> um, Mood, how you doing, man? Yo, I'm good, man. I'm good. Uh, you know, there's a lot going on in the world, but, you know, daytime basketball is certainly something to be excited about. Uh, we're having some local elections here. It seems like everything ran smoothly, both with voting by mail and with in-person voting here. So that's certainly good to hear. And uh, so I'm very happy here in Leon County, Florida, about the voting that went on today. So as I mentioned at the top, uh, it's been a minute since since we have have hopped on the mic. So I'm, we're we're introducing a new segment, and it's called "What Are You On?" and 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 essentially it's just kind of going to be you know what books are you reading, what TV shows are you watching, what movies have you consumed, like any 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 sort of uh, media or any sort of content you're consuming that you want to put other folks onto that they might enjoy. I'll, I'll start with you, Boo. So, yeah, actually, uh, I just got back from a trip home and to Chattanooga, Tennessee, just to escape Tallahassee for a little bit. And, uh, you know, uh, we started listening to an audio book, um, OK Boomer, Let's Talk, which talks about millennials uh, <laughs> and their particular situation, like we sort of discussed during this uh, this pod about, you know, we graduated from college, many of us into the Great Recession as we started to gain some traction, now we're hit by the coronavirus pandemic. And it talks about that and how drastically different the worlds are that uh, the boomer generation entered into and experienced than millennials and even Gen Z. So it's been a really interesting uh, a book to listen to. Um, and then, you know, for my dessert, I've been watching The Legend of Korra, which is the uh, nice. Nice. sequel to the Avatar The Last nice. Airbender, you yeah. know. So, yeah. you know, you got to get it in and Netflix just added it in. But uh, I've got Project Power mm. uh, in the uh, queue as well as uh, Umbrella Academy season two in the queue as well. There you go. Those, those some solid picks right there. Those, 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 those some solid picks. picks. Uh, and, and what you want, bro? Uh, so so we we binge like one series uh, every couple months because mostly work gets in the way. Uh, so we just binged the first season of Love, Victor. 
which is a spinoff of a movie, uh, Love, Simon. Um, so Love, Simon is basically a story about um, a young kind of white kid in a very liberal family um, who finds his way out of the closet. Um, but the spinoff uh, television series based on the movie called Love, Victor is about a uh, Hispanic kid, Mexican-American kid, um, who is not in a particularly welcoming or accepting family. Um, and so, you know, my partner and I set up and watched the series. My partner is Mexican-American, first generation. And so it kind of like hit home. And like, you know, we, we understood so much of what wasn't being said sometimes in the dialogue. Um, and so, you know, we, we set up. I had a, I had a few, good, few good tears. Uh, and, uh, but yeah, it was, it was, it's good. Actually, I was, it was recommended, I think, um, probably by UB and by Brad. And, uh, yeah, I feel like everyone was telling me to watch it. <laughs> we just finally sat down and did it. So, uh, but it was good. It was really good. It was, it was yeah, it is. It definitely is really good. Kirsten and I have watched it as well. Like I'd pop in while she was watching it. And I was like, oh, what is this? It's yep. good. Well, so I, one of the reasons it's good, it, it turns out, I found out that it's executive produced by the same people that executive produced This Is Us. Oh, so wow. that. That's why the writing is so excellent. I was like, I was like, the writing is unbelievably good, and that makes sense. It's the it's the same people from behind this as us, and it's not as heavy as this is us. Like there, it not deals with heavy stuff, but like I had to, I had to go off this is us because it was just like, <laughs> hey man, this is this is too much. Same. Like I don't, I don't, same. I don't need, I don't like life is difficult enough. I don't, I don't need additional stressors. But exactly. let's 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 easily and smoothly transition from the fictional and non important. To, right. to, to something that was super important that, that happened during the hiatus, our hiatus, which was uh, Kamala Harris uh, was chosen as the vice presidential pick, which is you called that. Right. Yeah, that was that was that was you. I, I, I've been calling it from the beginning. Look, you did. I, I didn't I did not think there was another real option from, I don't know, February forward. And I, I actually I have at least one really nice dinner coming up uh, from a bet on this uh i feel like that i might be owed some other some other funds so i'm feeling pretty good about this <laughs> um but look you know here's here's the deal yeah um, like why why was she yeah, the pick? i think i think that there are a couple of things one there was there was this kind of the the reality that she has won you know she ran for president uh, unsuccessfully obviously and like her campaign didn't even make it to, into the electoral uh season so the primary season but um, at the same time, she had, you know, she was a progressive, relatively progressive DA. She ran, you know, she was the, you know, attorney general for California. She was a, you know, uh, first term senator. Like she had, she has been through the rigor of elections um, and having put herself on the presidential stage, she had also been through the rigor on the national stage. And so I, now, I thought that it was like, she was an obvious choice because of her electoral background. Um, but also she, you know, she's a black and Indian woman. Um, who brings much needed diversity to a party that claims to be or hold the mantle on diversity, but was, a, you know, has decided to put as a nominee and I, you know, for lots of reasons, um, a old white man. Right. And so you kind of have to have a conversation with yourself as a party. If you're going to put a, you know, 70 plus year old, uh, you know, old white man as your, as your nominee, you need to have someone as the VP that actually demonstrates the bridge to next generation. So I thought that those two things, were like obvious winners for her. What I didn't bet on that turned out to be a bigger bet, uh, a bigger decision maker, it turns out, from what at least from the reporting, is her relationship with his son, Bo Biden, um, who was Attorney General of Delaware when she was Attorney General of California. And uh, I had not, and I, I underappreciated how much the, rela the relationship between her and Bo would give Joe Biden ease in making a decision uh, about bringing her onto the ticket. So I thought that, you know, that was the, that was kind of the, uh, the ace in her pocket that I had just 
like I thought she was the good pick purely on like just heard who she is, how she like has defined herself over time. She's not too liberal. She's not too, you know, not too moderate. I thought she'd done a good job of playing the electoral space, but um, she had, she had an ace in the hole and, and that was her kind of, you know, actual honest personal relationship uh, with his son um, who, who we all uh, will remember passed away uh, a few years ago from cancer. So I, I thought that um, once you put that in the mix, there was just, there was nobody else who could even, you know, come close. Mood, do you think she was the right choice? Yes, um, I do think she was the right choice. Um, I think when you look at the people in the running, um, you looked at, you know, the most popular choice of progressives and younger voters was Elizabeth Warren, but we've sort of discussed the difficulty with that with Massachusetts having a Republican governor and potentially being able to appoint um, her replacer and, you know, or her successor. Um, and, you know, the, the push for Democrats to take the Senate, you don't want you can't afford to just give up a seat like that. And, you know, there was, I've heard some talk about things they could have pulled legislatively to ensure a Democrat filled the seat. But I think at a moment where we're trying to highlight how Republicans abuse their power with these gerrymandered legislatures, that's not what we really want to do. That, that's not the move. And when you look at Elizabeth Warren, she's, I think, just turned 70 or is right around 70. She's not really the if Biden decided to call it quits after this term, he's, she's not really the bridge. She's still of that same generation as Biden and Trump. Like they're all in their seventies. Um, and so you, then you look to the rest of the field and no one really had the name recognition other than, you know, your known senators of Klobuchar, um, Susan Rice, certainly. But then you talk about, oh, you're going to have to deal with in this age of disinformation or misinformation of Benghazi. Like, do you really want to bring Susan Rice into this? She's never been on a national stage in the sense of running for office. Like, yes, she's played it on a high level. She's, you know, incredibly, um, you know, qualified and intelligent, all those things. She checks all the boxes, except for the fact that she's not run for state, for, you know, national office, or even like as large as California statewide office, as Kamala Harris has, both for uh, the Senate and as attorney general. Um, so, you know, Kamala has had not only done that, but also been vetted through the presidential uh, primary process. So a lot of these newer faces, your Karen Basses, um, your Stacey Abrams, your uh, Val Demings, they haven't been vetted for running for president, like vice president or president, right? They just haven't been vetted on a national stage like this. Um, so I think it was the only real obvious pick because also she fits in Biden's lane. Like she's moderate. She yep. is mo like, while she has got one of the more progressive voting records in the Senate, she is really moderate when she ran. For, she was really moderate when she ran for uh, president, although she, she kind of teetered between uh, Medicare for all and then a public option. She, but I mean, when you're talking about those things compared to Republicans, like I think we were way too, we spent way too much time in the primary debating all of that when you look at the comparison to what's on the other side, which is just gut healthcare and you're on your own. So I think she was the right pick. I think uh, she's been, I mean, there's been nothing, but you look at the fundraising numbers, they've been fantastic. You look at the reception, it's been fantastic. And then we'll talk a little bit about the, uh, you know, the gripers who were, there was going to be some people that were displeased with the pick, no matter who it was. That's just a fact. Well, let's also not forget her most important credential, uh, she went to Howard University. Of course, naturally. Uh, so let, let's uh, let's just not forget. I we this is a pod with uh, three men of Howard. So let's just 
take a moment and uh, pat ourselves on the back. Yeah, uh, I mean, she is a woman of the Mecca. I'm, so, well, I'm patting us because it took, it took us 10 minutes to get there. So I'm, we, I'm like, we I'm, took our time. I'm, yeah, we I'm, did. Pretty, we I'm pretty impressed. So for, for all y'all, there are more than a few HBCUs out there. We took 10, y'all had 10 let me say, minutes there. Y'all welcome. Let me, let me say in the words of uh, Dr. Sean Combs, sometimes you got to take your time <laughs> and survey the land and look around and just appreciate where you are. I mean, look, so look, so, I, but, but to me, but I think that also, I mean, we joke about it, but honestly, I mean, the, she, she helped raise $40 million in 48 hours after her announcement. That money was, a, was a reflection of, you know, the HBCU networks, you know, obviously Howard, but like all HBCUs who are proud to see an HBCU alum on like as the vice presidential nominee. Um, she's a, she's a uh, soror of Alpha Chapter Alpha Kappa Alpha Sorority Incorporated, also founded at Howard University. Um, but she, uh, but, but because of that, not just her, uh, sorority sisters, but all, you know, kind of D9 sororities and fraternities are, you know, ecstatic about seeing someone from our kind of Panhellenic council, um, you know, represented on, on the national scale. So, and so what happened as soon as, you know, the, as soon as she was announced, I mean, obviously all of our kind of Facebook threads and all that stuff kind of blew up, um, because of our, you know, we, we have a lot of power people in our, in our networks, but the immediate call was you need to put some money on the line for her right now. You need to like demonstrate to like Joe Biden and the rest of the country that this was a good pick because it was like, look, if they're going to pick one of us, we need to back her. And I think that, uh, you know, that financially, at least people started to really put their money where their mouth was, um, you know, you include like we, Jaime and I had not uh, at, at up to this point, put any money into the, uh, into the presidential election, or at least not until the once it was clear that Biden was going to be the nominee. We had we had uh, you know written some checks during the primary season, but you know this was an opportunity for us to say like, no, this was a good pick. Uh, this is like the direction we want to see the country going in, and we're going to put some money behind that. And you know, I feel like you know, obviously, forty million dollars worth of other people did that too, right? And that that's that was significant. That's important. Um, as as, as Mood mentioned, like there was always going to be pushback about who the vice presidential candidate was. And particularly if you pick a black woman, you're going to catch a lot of misogyny, um, a lot of anti-blackness. It's a fun intersection there. Um, mm -hmm. And so I do, I would like to be able to have, I think some of my trepidation about uh, her as a selection, and it really isn't about her so much as the conversation around her has been, if you do criticize her, then it's because you hate black people or it's because you hate women or and not. Hey, I have real issues with, hey, representation is cool. But if I don't feel like you're an actual progressive, I'm going to have and, and have maybe proven that specifically in the criminal justice realm. I'm going to push back on that. Like I've I've, I've spoken about like, how, hey, I, I have some questions um, and. I'll, I'll, I'll start with you, Mood, uh, as a prosecutor. I, I think you, you're probably um, uniquely positioned to talk about this. But, like, how, how, would, how do you the criticism of her as a prosecutor? And can you have, how do you delineate between that and just the I don't like black women, that whole just nonsense and noise? Well, I, I think uh, it's sometimes hard to divorce uh, criticism of her record as a prosecutor, both in San Francisco as DA of San Francisco 
and Attorney General of California from sometimes the sort of misogyny or flat-out racism that she's faced in, in her career, where she's been the first in every elected position that she's ever held. Um, I, I think there's room to be critical of her record. It's like there, there's room for it, but I think when faced with like what law and order Trump is, it kind of like falls, it, it should fall away, right? Like I get you want to be pushing on the ticket and pushing for better policies, but I think when you look at what she's done and like who she's uh, had against her, like when, 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 like she, she's, she's made an enemy of the police unions when she was running for attorney general. Like she, they were not happy with her when she decided not to uh, seek the death penalty uh, or excuse me, as DA of, I think it was when she was DA of uh, San Francisco, when she decided not to pursue the death penalty, like in a case where a police officer was killed. Um, and that, that's a big thing. Like that's a thing that normally in state attorneys races or D district attorney races matters a lot is who does the police union back? They are a power, powerful lobby as we've talked about before. Um, so that's huge that she was like not seeking the death penalty on cases. Um, she's done a number of things that kind of like trailblazed the way on being progressive as a prosecutor. And I get that people, um, and I don't want to just chalk it up to like not being familiar, but I do think that, uh, you know, when people pick apart her record as attorney general and they argue about, oh, she argued for somebody to be, you know, wrongfully convicted or something like that. They don't, they, I think there's a bit of misunderstanding about what the role of attorney general is. You know, there are two sides of it. One side is to argue to uphold convictions, you know, when they have a good faith basis to do so. The other side is to, you know, try to, you know, argue against the conviction being upheld. And that's why you have judges that weigh in on it. They, they hear the arguments from both sides and decide what's correct. You know, as long as, you know, she was arguing good faith and I've not seen an example yet of where she wasn't, um, you know, I just think it's difficult in this day and age with, you know, everyone being very mindful about criminal justice reform. Um, it seems like it's hard to be um, an elected prosecutor running for national office and I think people struggle with like, what is the role of a prosecutor? Well, it's to hold people accountable for their crimes. And that may not always feel good, but I know who it does feel good to sometimes. And that's the people who are the people's families and the people who are victims of crime, right? Nobody likes the prosecutor until they're the victim, um, until their family member's the victim. Like, you know, we talked about these other cases with like George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery. We then understand the importance of having a prosecutor who cares and who's invested in seeing justice done. Well, you need people to do those jobs. But doing that job, getting to the position to make those decisions means making some unpopular decisions as well. And it's a tough thing to balance. I think that Kamala Harris, Senator Harris um, has to answer for her record and should answer for her record. But I think we also need to keep it in perspective. What's the alternative? There's a binary choice coming up. One guy is talking about law and order and, and is tear gassing peaceful protesters, um, you know, kind of concerning the New York police union, police department union uh, endorsed him in a state that he's not going to win, like not going to win at all, but endorsed him nonetheless. It's kind of concerning, kind of concerning. So I think, you know, we have to keep it in context. And that's what I've, you know, tried to remind people, like, it's fine to be critical. And I'm critical of Biden as well. And we'll talk a little bit about, you know, the DNC night one 
later in the pod. But it, it's fine to be critical. It's fine to push back, but like also keep it in context. You know, I, look, I think that's exactly right. I mean, here's here's the problem. You can you you can critique uh, anyone's policies. Like you know, if you're if you put yourself into the political world, you decide that you want to run for office, then your policies are up for grabs. And I think that is always a fair like that's always going to be fair game. Um, and there's also fair game about your, you know, if there's something in your past or story that suggests that your, um, the, you know, your con- connection or relationship to your policies is disingenuous or hypocritical, right? Like that, I think that's also fair game. But what we, what, what's not fair game is um, she's nasty just because she's a woman. Right. Um, she's mean because she's a black woman who, and black women aren't allowed to be angry. Um, she was... You know, she asked prosecutorial style questions to Justice Kavanaugh, who was, to be fair, sitting to be getting ready to receive a lifetime appointment and needed to be heavily interrogated for his record. Um, you know, that made her, according to Trump, you know, kind of a, a you know, nasty, you know, despicable, disgusting woman, et cetera. Um, those are the types of attacks that were not made um, against, you know, Adam Schiff, for example, in his prosecution of the impeachment. And it has everything to do with the fact that Adam Schiff is a man and Kamala Harris is a woman. Um, and even more so that she's a black woman. And so I think that if you want to talk about, you know, Kamala's decision to use, uh, uh, you know, truancy laws as a way to like lower uh, the ability or lower, uh, you know, kind of the, the truancy or, or, you know, the failure of students to, you know, continue to go to school or, or to try to lower the dropout rate, which is why she did it. She, it was an attempt to lower the dropout rate um, in her jurisdiction. You can, but we can have a real debate about whether or not that was like the best way to go forward with it, right? I think that that is an honest conversation that's worth having. Now, to be fair, that's an honest conversation that's worth having about her career 10 years ago too. So I think there's also like, when, what's been interesting to me is I have heard almost no critiques of her record as a senator, right? I, like, I just, I haven't heard anybody say, you know what, when we put this bill on the floor, like she didn't back it, right? Fourth um, most progressive senator by voting record. Right. Four, fourth well, most. So, so, I mean, that's what, that's like, that's what Bernie Sanders, uh, Elizabeth Warren, and then there's a third person in there, right? Like that's like. I don't like, even she, think it's Feinstein. Right. I don't, yeah, I don't it, even think it, she's ahead of her. It's definitely not uh, Senator Feinstein, right? So, so that's a, like, it, so there's no real critique of her, of her record as a senator, and the and the critique of her record as as attorney general are, as I've seen them, relative like not particularly good critiques because they have been critiques of lower level decisions that she ultimately had responsibility for, and I think takes responsibility for, um, but was not the decision maker, right? Like it, you know, these were things that. They passed through her office and she may or may not have seen them. And I think she was right to say, like, I was the attorney general. The buck stopped with me. So I should have evaluated. That's the right answer. But the reality of how that work actually happens is that, you know, there are a lot of other people between the decision and her. And so um, I, I, I just haven't I most of what I've heard has been a critique of her record as a D.A. And um, and I think that, again, there's a fair conversation to be had there. Um, I think there's been a fair critique of her uh, of her kind of waffling on her health care decision during the primary about whether she really backed Medicare for all or she backed some other version. Um, and she kind of pushed back and forth, you know, trying to both be um, she initially supported with a sponsor of Bernie Sanders Medicare for all bill. And then during the primaries kind of backed away from that. Um, I think that's a real conversation to be had about what her real position is on health care. So. I think there's room to have debate about her policies. And I'm, and I think that people who want to have that debate 
like, you know, we should do it. We should have, we should have the conversation. Now, granted, we should be having that conversation in the context of who, what's available on the other side, like Mood said, right? Like it's kind of, we're no longer, we're not in a vacuum anymore. We're not picking among Democrats. We're, that, that phase is over. We pick Joe Biden, that's it. So now the conversation is, is Joe Biden's kind of building on Obamacare plus Senator Harris's slightly more progressive version of healthcare, which is, they'll probably land somewhere in the middle when it actually comes time to put a bill on the floor. Um, is that better than the absolutely no plan for healthcare slash trying to dismantle it in the courts that we're getting right now? Like that's, that's the question. It's a, and, it, and if people really have to uh, have a conversation with themselves about, you know, do I want something better or do I want nothing or something worse? Like those are, re- that's, where we, that's where we're at and um, on, on healthcare and a host of other issues. So most of it, most of the critiques I've seen have just been people who are um, uncomfortable with women in power, really uncomfortable with black women in power, um, and, and really uncomfortable with the reality that having become the vice presidential nominee and potentially becoming the vice president means she's next in line. Not just during this term when, you know, knock on wood, hopefully Biden has a great term, he's healthy, you know, but the stresses of the presidency are real. He is a 77-year-old man. I think he's 78 when he's uh, inaugurated prayerfully in January. Um, that will make him the oldest inaugurated president in American history. I mean, you know, there are realities about kind of life expectancy that that are just not far from anyone's mind uh, when you look at Joe Biden kind of, you know, next to Kamala Harris. She Especially when president. you don't spend all your time golfing at your personal That's golf right. courses. That's right. When you actually work instead of spending two thirds of your time in office golf and spending taxpayer dollars while you do it. Yes. Yes. Because the secret service of course has to stay at that hotel, which is putting money back in Trump's pocket. But you know, again, you can do, we can do four more years of that. We can do four more years of like putting money in Trump's pocket. um, Or we can actually try to, you know, try to do something different, but you know, Senator Harris is obviously she's going to be next in line during the term and she's going to be next in line in 2024 um, you know, as the having been vice president uh, for four years. So I think people are uncomfortable with that. Um, you know, we're going to see there's this kind of, we know where lots of Democrats is going to be, right? Black women are going to be behind her. Black women are going to be behind anybody who's a Democrat. And they've demonstrated that for the last, you know, 30, 40 years in American politics. Black men are a group to watch. Um, if black men actually have an uptick in, in support for Trump, I think that will be a response to Senator Harris. Um, if white women um, either stay where they were at 55% or move higher, I think it'll be an honest response to uh, Senator Harris and not a response to Joe Biden. So I'll be watching those trends to see if uh, to see how how uncomfortable America really is with black women in power. I have a kind of larger question about representation, uh, particularly for African-Americans and criticism and public criticism. Um, I know I'll speak for myself. I know that I am always a little reticent to publicly criticize any African-American that reaches a certain height. Like, yeah, there does come a point where you're like, all right, well, big Carson, you're wild and fat. <laughs> like, like, I, like, yeah, like, yes, there is, there is. No, nah, man. No, nah, no. Nah. <laughs> <laughs> we can't, we can't rock with this. There's a, there's, there's Kanye, a cross- we're looking at you too. Yeah, oh, yeah, like there's a crossing the, of the Rubicon, like at some point where you're like, okay, yeah, you, you've gone far too far. But then there are also other people that uh, are, are more universally beloved who we may have and take issue with. And so I think 
some of the, I think we are starting to get to the point, particularly as it, as it pertains to this, this sort of revolution that we're going through, that people, black people, aren't as comfortable with just representation, right? Because all skin folk ain't kin folk. And so, like, right. just because you look like me, and even this might even have a background similar to mine, that doesn't make you immune from a kind of the... the the, the criticism of, of, of your record. Again, we're talking about the things that you're doing. And, and, and I think that's part of what we've seen uh, with Kamala Harris because like oh, with Senator or I guess vice presidential um, nominee um, Kamala Harris. So like I, I, we, we've been talking about this like Chicago mayor Lori Lightfoot and she's recently uh, and she's an African-American woman, uh, openly homosexual. I think the first in Chicago's history. Yep. And so but She's come under fire recently for um, spending more, uh, uh, getting more money for the Chicago Police Department and uh, taking away uh, and keeping them in schools. And there, there are a host of other things that, that, that she's been at the head of. And I think that there's just a general feeling of, OK, we've had the representatives who look like us in these positions of power. But I need you to continue on with that. I need you to. Um, still keep that same sort of energy when you reach there, because if you made so many concessions once you've gotten there, then it's just, then I can't tell you apart from the enemy when when you get in there. I think I think that's a lot of the the pushback that 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 uh, Kamala and and other um, other African Americans, men or women, will see if they're in any sort of positions of power. I want to. Yeah. I, I want to change it. Well, I'm sorry. Were you? Were you? Uh, no, I, I just think. I just. I think you're right. I mean, I just. I just think. I think that you're right. Like, look, representation is not enough, right? Like, I mean, Ben Carson, uh, Herman Cain, may he rest in peace. Um, and <laughs> and uh, and you know, but other other black folk, particularly particularly black folk who are supportive of this current administration, are a clear example that just like I don't care if there are black people working in the White House right now. Right, like I didn't care when Omarosa was working in the White House. Uh, <laughs> like that was not like like that. You were you were obviously not um, because you were supporting this administration. You were obviously not also advocating for my issues. Um, so I think it's I think that that's a fair critique. I think that I don't know if I think it's a fair critique of Senator Harris. Um, I think it's a, but I think it is a fair question to ask. Like, and and I think it, but it also comes down to uh, black folk who are a lot of younger black folk in particular. Who are newly deeply engaged in political in the political world, um, I think have to come to appreciate how the sausage gets made, and I think that's a really hard lesson for anyone who really like if you really love politics. I think one of the hardest lessons you learn is how hard it is to get anything done, and then once you start learning where all the levers are, you know if you if you got to get a bill through Congress, that means you got to get it through committees, you got to you know whatever. And then there, you know, some one senator can hold it up if they want to, and then you finally get it to the president's desk and get signed. And then some organization is going to hate the legislation and sue, and it goes all the way up to the Supreme Court. Working, I mean, that that is that's our process. That's how that's how our democracy works, and it's messy, and and it's really hard to do good stuff. It's really hard, and so I think that if we're going to have the conversation, it has to be like. Is this person advocating for the issues that I care about? Are they trying? Right? Like if, if you look if you look at someone and you go, they're not even trying, then I'm with you. Like I don't care if you black, brown, you know, whatever. Um, if you aren't even trying to push things in the in a positive direction for the community, for my community and communities I care about, then like 
you know, so be it. it is, you're not doing me any good. Uh, but if you're trying and there are real roadblocks in the way, then it's my job as an, as an advocate to like start trying to move those roadblocks out of the way so you can do more good work. And I think that we have a lot more responsibility in that process. And I think that we take sometimes, especially kind of, you know, uh, more progressive, you know, black and brown millennials who want change now, right? Like, and I think it's really hard to, um, to say to someone who, whose body is on the line in the protest or just, you know, walking out of their door in their neighborhood um, that it's going to take time, right? Like I, I, I under, uh, that's hard. And I think that, um, but, but it, it is the reality that if you want real political change, like you got to get into the sausage making. Uh, and, you know, we're going to criticize or I'm going to criticize, you're going to criticize, everybody on this pod is going to criticize uh, Biden. At some point, we probably will cr- uh, criticize uh, Kamala Harris. Um, but also remember, we're going to vote for Biden. That's, <laughs> that is overarching all of this, right? That's like, the theme. That's the thing. It doesn't <laughs> matter what you hear. If I say I dislike this part about the ticket I disagree with this part about Biden's history. It's always going to be. <laughs> and look, man, on that cue, I took issue with something he said last night. He basically did the few bad apples during a segment of a video portion where he talked about a couple or I forget the exact verbiage, but uh, he talked about a few bad cops and we need to prosecute them and get them out of the job. And it basically followed the few bad apples sort of thinking which is the whole problem with the whole situation is the few bad apples and they're just, you know, outliers. Right. And it's not a result of a culture um, within police departments. Um, but again, that's our guy. That's we're right. rolling with them. Exactly. That's what we're you doing. know, because the, the alternative does not care. That's right. Well, I'm glad I'm, I'm glad you got us into the the DNC mood. Um, they Monday was the first day of it. They're going to be going to this till Thursday, right? It's the they have right. stuff till Thursday. Um, what what first like kind of and set set the stage for like why this is kind of an important thing. I still don't really feel it the way everybody else does. Like I watch it. Like I I I watch the speeches and stuff like that. Uh, this year is obviously a little bit different because it's all virtual. So it's you know it's it's very very different. But like, I still don't really, I guess I don't, usually you'll have a, you know, stadium packed full of people and there's, you know, the streamers and everybody screaming and yelling and it's a big thing, but I still don't really feel it, still don't really get it. So just, just set the stage a little bit about why it's important that they have this and why they have it at all. So, so real quick. So basically, uh, so, so uh, Democratic convention, Republican convention, which is next week are really just party meetings, right? So this is the formal process when the parties actually select their nominees, their presidential nominee and their vice presidential nominee. This is also when they vote on the platform, right? So they, they decide on what the platform of the party is. And the platform of the party is obviously controlled by the person who becomes the presidential nominee in large part. There are usually like some fights back and forth, but largely it's the presidential nominee's platform. Um, and they're also big pep rallies, right? So you have the formal business of the convention, which is basically nominating someone, the formal process of nominating someone t- uh, to, to lead your party in the presidential election. And then you have the, the pep rally part. Um, given where we are with the coronavirus and the fact that this is all virtual, it's 99% uh, pep rally, uh, this year, <laughs> right? So, so, you know, for those of us who would have in previous years been, would have been watching C-SPAN so that we could catch all of the floor votes and kind of like, 
you know, which platform committee was, you know, kind of getting into a tussle with, 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 uh, on what issues. Um, this year, all of that stuff is happening behind the scenes or happening virtually outside of the view of the public. Um, and it's just the kind of, you know, messaging arm. So what usually happens, and I hope it's true this year, we'll, we'll, see, we'll start seeing some ratings numbers in the next day or two. Um, but usually it's the single most um, concentrated time for the American public on a particular nominee. Right. So for the next four days, theoretically, or at least historically, more Americans would be tuned into Joe Biden and his nomination than any other time during the election, with the exception of maybe debates and maybe right before the, the election. And next week, the same will be true of Trump. So um, this is the time for them to put their best foot forward. And, and so we are, uh, you know, Democrats are doing their best to show themselves as a diverse, big tent party progressive who cares about the you know kitchen table issues the 3 a.m issues that keep people up at night um that's the message right um and that has been that's going to be the message all week and that is uh, it's also some attempt at bridging our more progressive wing bernie sanders aoc who are who uh, are speaking or or, um, or will speak um with the more moderate i'm not so much conservative we don't really have conservative democrats anymore but the more moderate democrats like biden um, like Bill Clinton, um, you know, who I think is now would certainly be considered a moderate. Uh, he was not a moderate in 92 when he ran president, but, but he most certainly would be viewed as a moderate now. Um, so these are, these are, so, you know, for the most part, what people are tuning into these days are, are the pep rallies for the parties. And so uh, you guys are, are, are following this a little bit more closely than I am. I, I, I have a general, I've listened to Michelle Obama's speech um, I'm going to listen to Bernie Sanders' speech a little bit later. Is there anybody that you're looking forward to seeing or that that you heard through the first day that you were just head over heels about their messaging? I'll start with you, Move. I mean, Michelle Obama killed it last night. Um, killed it. Just killed it. Um, she both offered a vision of hope, made the case for Joe Biden, but also was very pointed and made a very effective case against Trump. And I, I, I caught some of his criticism of her speech last night, and it was embarrassing, frankly. Um, he said that because he tried to be critical of her because she it was a taped speech. Um, and he she it, during her speech, she talked about more than 150,000 Americans had died uh, from cr the coronavirus. Um, and he tried to be critical of the fact that actually that's not the right number <laughs> because the number is more than 20,000 american lives higher than that like i don't think you want to be pointing that out that on your watch actually well act like hashtag well actually <laughs> maybe not the time for that man maybe not the time for that and you know you know he was like salty about it because you know she made a point to point out the fact that he lost the popular vote by nearly three million votes and you know that's something he, he he's very sensitive about and it's something we can we've talked about in general is Republicans presidents have struggled to win the popular vote in the last 32 years. Um, I, only one it's only happened one time, and that's George W. Bush in his second term. Um, so they're struggling like they are not like they love to talk about the silent majority. But we know what side the silent majority actually is. Right. It's just turning them out it is the Democrats job is turning them out. But Michelle Obama was excellent. Bernie was excellent and made, I thought, a much more full-throated endorsement of Biden than he did of Hillary necessarily. I mean, I still have nightmares about the 2016 conviction, convention where there were boos of Hillary uh, when Bernie was speaking or Senator Sanders was speaking. Um, 
it was it and it has been much more full throated ever since he got out of the race. I think everyone understood the stakes and and Senator Sanders particularly has been really uh, impressive in how he lays out the stakes. Like democracy is clearly on the line. Trump was talking about recently running for another four years, even if he wins this year. Yeah, I saw that. Yeah. Like, what do you like? It's not funny. It's not funny. I know there was a Key and Peele sketch. There was. With, with, with Obama joke, like someone playing Obama talking about another three years. Uh, but like, that's not funny. That it's not funny. We're seeing uh, like in Belarus, uh, you know, dictators be dictators and then look to Putin for help. Um, but you know, to get back to the Democratic National Convention, um, I'm looking forward. Uh, not so much to tonight. I, I looked at the schedule of people tonight. Uh, I don't know that we should be giving up primetime slots to Bill Clinton in today's day and age, but here we are. Um, but uh, you know, Dr. Jill Biden is speaking tonight. Uh, certainly, will be interested to hear what she has to say. You know, because we don't get a lot of your our second lady of the United States when they're in office. Um, you know, the vice president is just kind of the Robin that we don't catch much. So it'd be nice to see her make the case for her husband. Um, but I'm really excited about tomorrow night and Senator Harris and former president Obama uh, go up. You know, tomorrow night is a huge, hard hitting night. And I'm certainly looking forward to that. Um, and then Thursday night, I'll be certainly looking forward to Joe Biden making the case for himself and his vision for America. Yeah, look, I mean, uh all the all the all the you know big wigs are are coming out uh, to 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 you know put their mark on uh, this convention. Um, you know, I'm looking. I'm actually looking forward to Bill Clinton's speech. I agree with you wholeheartedly that in a Me Too era, that Bill Clinton giving uh, Bill Clinton prime time is kind of a uh, interesting decision for Democrats. But I you know right before the, the call, I was talking uh, to B about the fact that you know Clinton's 2012 uh, convention speech you know, is responsible in large part for turning the tide on the Obama uh, reelection campaign. I mean, it was a, it was a, one of the longest convention speeches ever, you know, something like 46 or 47 minutes, but he really laid out the case for what it really actually means to be a Democrat. And I think that it's interesting because that was just eight years ago and he could not give that same speech today, right. In light of people like Bernie Sanders, like AOC um, who have pulled the party uh, uh, to, a, to a more left, more progressive, um, idea on policy. So, you know, I think that, you know, it's interesting. We'll see what Bill has to say tonight. I think that he will say, you know, obviously he's going to say, you know, talk about how long he's known Joe Biden, that he can kind of, that he's going to be about for Joe Biden. Um, and I, I imagine he will spend some time uh, talking about kind of, you know, where he sees America in the, in the world, right? I mean, you know, most people remember that after, uh, you know, President Clinton uh, left office, he founded the Clinton Global Foundation. Um, and has been kind of a foreign policy, you know, uh, wonk for the last 20 years or so. And so I imagine he will try to set the stage for the damage Trump has done to America's place on the global stage. Um, and so I, I, I would expect that to be a big part of the conversation. I haven't heard Joe, like, like Mood, I haven't heard Joe Biden speak um, almost ever. So I actually, I have no, I, you know, I was just like, I was just thinking, I was like, I don't think I actually know what her voice sounds like. So, um, so I'd be really interested to see if she can kind of give us a good rousing, um, you know, full throated endorsement of her husband. I mean, it'll obviously be personal. It'll be emotional. It'll be about, um, surviving tragedy alongside him. I think that's been a big theme is, uh, Biden's empathy has been a big theme for the party. Um, mostly because 
we have never had an American president who could not show empathy when um, when there was when America was suffering until now. I mean, the the idea, uh, you know, kind of, you know, uh, Michelle Obama's big line last night, um, which was a play on Trump's uh, flippant remark in one of his interviews, you know, you know, well, that, uh, you know, it is what it is. Um, we have never had an American president who says it is what it is when, you know, tens of thousands of Americans are dying. Um, and I and, and and I think a lot of last night's messaging, a lot of the messaging for the rest of the week is going to be that Joe Biden would never say that. Right. He would it would be his responsibility. And he would uh, and he has the empathy based on his own personal tragedy to empathize with, you know, people who are, as I think I think they said, you know, looking at the empty chair um, in the middle of the night. And I think that, that was a really powerful image uh, for me as a part of the, the speeches last night, um, because, you know, 170,000 plus Americans are, are dead as a result of coronavirus. Um, I think we talked about this um, as well, that like nearly everyone in my immediate family uh, came down with COVID as well. You know, so for a few weeks, I was also in the number of people who was like wondering, you know, if, if I was going to be coming home for Thanksgiving or Christmas and like seeing an empty chair at the dining room table. Right. And I think for people who actually are experiencing that, um, the failure of leadership by Trump and his inability to empathize with them um, is is heartbreaking. Um, so I, I think that that's going to be the message Uh We'll see. I haven't seen a, a ton of big policy positions uh, coming out of the DNC this week yet. Uh, I'll be interested to see if Biden waits until uh, Thursday uh, to do that. If he's going to wait to lay out the platform in his speech or if he's going to start rolling it out with Senator Harris um, middle of the week. So we'll, I think that'll be interesting to see. I do want to just bring up briefly this pull quote, because since we're talking about speeches, uh, governor of Ohio, John Kosich, um, And I'll I'll just go ahead and quote him, Uh, quote, I'm sure there are Republicans and independents who couldn't imagine crossing over to Democrat. They fear Joe may turn sharp left left and leave them behind. I don't believe that because I know the measure of the man, close quote. Um, And I was trying to think of, you know, obviously this this has been a, a running theme that Democrats want to take you know get the votes of more moderate republicans but i was i was thinking about like there isn't that other end of that spectrum like i don't ever remember republicans and i don't watch a lot of republican national conventions uh so so maybe i i missed that one but i i don't remember a lot of republicans it ever being a, a theme for republicans hey let me go over to the other aisle to get more republic to get more democrats for them it has always seemed like let's go super hard with what we're doing and get everybody uh everyone that's that's a part of the republican base let's get all of them but while also making it polarizing and that you can't and and that there is no connection with getting a reaching across the aisle to get any of those sorts of votes that we're going to do that and i just kind of have a larger question of is that a I, i it just doesn't feel like a sustainable model if one side is always looking over on the other side of the fence and seeing that those that grass is greener is that this is is that like a is that a a sustainable model is that does that show the sort of strength that a party needs in order to grow and in order to ultimately to dominate with its ideas for the government and i'll I'll start with uh you ed so i don't so i don't know i think that i understand why this is biden's strategy so biden is not a left progressive right so if you have two options you either have to like bring out your base in unbelievable numbers. I think he would have to have been an Elizabeth Warren. Um, I think she was probably the best bridge during the primary, right? She was very progressive, but she was also so smart and sharp that moderates believed in her ability to get stuff done. 
Bernie Sanders, I think, was too left progressive and didn't care about actually getting things done or policy-wise, at least that's how it appeared from the moderate perspective. And so he probably wouldn't have been able to be the unifier. Biden's, Biden's pitch to Democrats was, we are not going to depend on left progressive, mostly young voters who are, to be you know fair, relatively fickle voters, right? Um, they really liked Obama, right? Younger voters really liked Obama and came out really, really hard for Obama. Um, I think Biden's theory is, I don't know if I can be Obama, right? Like, and in fact, I think he says to himself, I'm not. Like, I think it's, I think it's an honest critique of himself. He's like, I'm not Barack Obama. I'm not going to get young people to get behind me in the way that he did. And so how do I build a coalition that can win? I reach out, to, I reach out across the aisle to disaffected moderate Republicans. And so this is about coalition building. Um, Obama built the Obama coalition, right, which was young voters, minority voters, um, women in particular as well. And I think Biden is you know, saying, OK, my coalition looks a little bit different. It's Democrats up to a certain point of progressiveness. And it's disaffected moderate Republicans. Now, is this a sustainable coalition for 2024? Absolutely not, right? When you don't have a Trump to run against, um, this is not a viable way of, of like being, a, you know, being the Democratic Party, right? We are at some point going to actually have the come to Jesus meeting we need to have about how progressive we actually want to be, um, what we actually want to do on big things like healthcare and criminal justice um, and a host of other structural issues, including the economy and wealth inequality. Um, and that come to Jesus meeting is going to happen during hopefully Biden's term. And it's going, to, it's going to start probably almost immediately, because if we win the presidency and both houses of Congress, you better believe that Warren and AOC and Bernie are going to be pushing Pelosi and Schumer, assuming Schumer is still a majority leader, to do really, really progressive things. And, and we're going to have to have the reckoning as a party about where we actually want to go and what we want to be in kind of 2024 forward. So it's not a sustainable um, beyond this election, right? The only reason it works in this election is because Trump is so god-awful that Republicans, many of whom are so embarrassed of him um, and that he represents their party, that they're willing to go with, you know, hey, it's an old white guy that we can trust. I mean, that's really their, that's really the theory of the case. Um, and so I, it's not sustainable in the long term. It is, I think, a winnable, a winning coalition in this election. But I think this is a unique circumstance. And I, I don't think Democrats should look at this election as the way forward. Like this is not, I think, how we like go forward for the next twenty or thirty years. Yeah, I agree with Ed wholeheartedly, and uh, you know, I, I have also thought about this. And Nate Silver tweeted this earlier today. But when you think about it, um, turning out a voter that wasn't going to vote is plus one for you, right? Net plus one taking a voter away from Trump and adding it to your camp is a net plus two. Um, so every voter he takes from Trump and adds to his camp is plus two, a net plus two. Um, so it, it, you know, taking all these Lincoln project Republicans and whoever else, you know, it, it it's effective for now. Um, and I think governing wise, um, you know, sorry, Governor, K former Governor Kasich, like, nah, man, like, we're not going to govern to make y'all happy because, like, y'all weren't, y'all are never concerned about us when y'all win. But obviously, Republicans use a variety of tools to win elections, namely not the popular vote or allowing the most people that can vote as possible or making easy to people to vote for people to vote. Um, 
so yeah, I mean, I, I, I understand why Biden's doing what he's doing. Um, because the big thing is, you know, with the way with the electoral, if this were a popular vote election, we would not have to bother with this. We could just run on our ideas and and heck, Elizabeth Warren or Bernie would be the nominee if it were done determined by the popular vote. But the the reality is with the electoral college, there are people we have to win voters in certain states. And with the way the landscape is now, we have to win certain states in the Midwest. Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, uh, Florida, maybe Arizona, uh, maybe Georgia. You know, I saw a poll come out today, you know, with uh, Asif and I think Purdue tied. Um, you know, just with the, the landscape of how the elections are conducted in this country with the Electoral College, um, you just have to you have to play the game the way the rules are set up currently. And the way it's set up is it favors voters in certain areas and it favors demographics that would not norm don't reflect what America looks like. Right. Um, so I, I think you're seeing this um, because we have a uniquely unqualified presidential candidate in Donald Trump. Um, and, and I think the stakes call for it to show like, Hey, it's okay to team up with us at this one time. Right. We're seeing the bad guy. We're seeing Batman and the Joker put aside their differences Essentially, for this one team, this one team up, right? Lincoln Project. We know what y'all did, right? Y'all supported George W. Bush and all the atrocities that occurred on his watch. Y'all were with him. Y'all were right there with him. A lot of those people worked for him, ran ads for him, worked on his campaign. It's we're having the Batman Joker team up for one time and one time only to get this guy who's even worse than the Joker. I don't know who that would be. I was trying I was trying to make that. Yeah, I was I to dark that. side, I don't know. <laughs> I, don't know right. I don't know who that would be. But there's one guy who's even worse than that. You know, we're having a one-time team up to get him out of office. And that's fine. But I've said it time and time again, like, keep an eye on these Lincoln Project Republicans because remember what they actually stand for. They stand for a lot of the things we've been running against. And we should not find ourselves... Uh, governing if we should win to keep them happy we need to yeah, it's not, like like we've been saying a lot on, on the pod right like there there are no permanent friends no permanent enemies only permanent interests right like that's not that's not my quote that's someone else famous i don't remember who said it but um but there's a but that's reality so look we're gonna we're gonna take all the republican support we can get um but the reality is we know that come january 21st 2020 they're going to be right back at our throats trying to push against all the progressive policies that we actually want to want to enact. So um, I think that I think Kasich's promise to disaffected Republicans that Biden won't abandon them and go left was ambitious and interesting um, and maybe wrong <laughs> for a number of reasons. They have nothing to do with Biden. Um, but I think I honestly think that Republicans, real Republicans who care about their party and not just not not just Trump voters, um, I think they want to be a viable party in the future. And they know that if they stay on this track, they can't do that. Like Kasich is the Republican of the future. Mitt oh, Romney well, let me Republican. be honest. I actually think that he's not. I, I think that they're headed down. I think Trumpism is going to stay around for a, a while longer. And I think given the yeah. way Republican primary, pres especially presidential primaries in like winner take all, I think it's here to stay for a while. Um, I, until I, eventually I, they get it and realize it's not viable, I think it's here for a little bit longer. I think Trump isn't the. I think it isn't. I hope I'm wrong too. I do. I hope I'm wrong too. 
Yeah, I don't I don't think you are either, Moo. Um, I'll, I'll I'll get you guys out of here uh, on this one. Um, with the we see already some uh, uh, Kamala Harris birtherism stuff. Uh, we see what's going on with the, and I'm not even going. I'm I'm not I'm not even going to really get into that. Just outside of the fact that it is a ploy that has been used. Um, mm-hmm. We see what's going on with the USPS uh, post service with. Um, uh, underfunding them and, and calling for their eradication, essentially. Um, how much worse is this going to get before we get to November? I'll start with you, Moon. I'm not sure. Um, starting with the po- United States Postal Service, um, I know there are going to be hearings with uh, DeJoy, who is a major Trump jo- uh, donator. Uh, or that's, the, that's the postmaster general. Right? Yes, that's the postmaster general, although really he has no qualifications to be postmaster general um, other than donating lots of money to Trump. Um, I, think I honestly don't know, really know what the postmaster general does. Like I've, like, I've always heard about it, but I don't, I for real don't actually have really any idea what they do. I, I, I mean, I couldn't tell you other than they oversee the United States Postal yeah, Service yeah, and they should be an effective manager of that. Yeah. AKA they should not be doing what they're doing right now. Right. Uh, and let's talk. So talking about it, um, he's scheduled, I think Democrats, uh, uh, majority leaders, uh, Nancy Pelosi has scheduled hearings, I think on Monday next week, uh, which I think is the 24th yep. to have him testify um, about all these changes that have been happening. And the, these changes that we're talking about are having sorting machines taken away and decommissioned, uh, getting rid of shelving, ending overtime for postal workers. And it's basically resulted in lots of people having their mail slowed down. And when we talk about people having their mail slowed down, we're not just talking about people in the cities, because I know Trump said, let the cities rot. He, he, he actually endorsed that idea because Democrats run cities and live in cities. Um, with the mail slowing down, uh, FedEx and UPS don't like live, r- delivering to rural areas. So... And also, FedEx and UPS are not in the Constitution. <laughs> and, you know, you, you see Republicans who've been salivating at the thought of privatizing the, the Postal Service. One, it's called a service, right? It's not designed to be profitable and nor, never was designed to be profitable and shouldn't have to be. Two, it's in the like UPS and FedEx aren't in the Constitution and they don't care. Like if you can't get service in the rural areas, why should they care? Because I think there's a fundamental like misunderstanding about uh, corporations in America, like corporations jobs and the way they're structured is to make the most profit for their shareholders. That is their job. That is it. It's not to look out for their employees and do right by their employees. Their one job is to make the most profit for their shareholders. Um, the, the United States Postal Service is designed to help the American citizens get mail and have correspondence. Um, so, I, and Trump over, I, I, I think it was like last weekend on Fox Business, not even main Fox, Fox Business, uh, you know, came out and said the quiet part out loud is that he doesn't want to fund the Postal Service because he knows a lot of Democrats going to vote by mail. Like, he does not want that to happen. He want, It's a way he sees of stymieing a universal vote by mail. Um, despite the fact that he, Ivanka, Jared, everybody, Mike Pence, all of them are going to vote by mail and have requested absentee ballots. Um, and he's tried to di- try to distinguish it, except there is no real distinguishment. Um, he's made this claim about voter fraud, which does not exist. 
every time they are challenged on proving voter fraud, they're, they're forced to confront the facts that any major or credible study of it has shown that voter fraud doesn't exist. And we have states that have been doing like uh, Washington, I believe, and Oregon and Colorado states that have been doing vote by mail for a long time. And like when you have the, the decimal places you have to go out for the, the voter fraud instances of voter fraud that exist, like you're, I heard it on NPR today, like you are five times more likely to be struck by lightning than to find a case <laughs> of actual voter fraud. That, that was the actual statistic. And like, and I hope during a debate, if a moderator won't do it, Joe Biden better. Um, that should be one of the arrows in his quiver is like, hey, BT dubs, you are five times more likely to be <laughs> to be struck by lightning than to find an instance of voter fraud. And that'd be just one case of it. Right. Not enough to tilt an election. Um, and, and I think that's it, what we're seeing is just an outright attack on democracy by any means necessary by Trump. And that's why we've continued to say here democracy is on the ballot because this guy does not care about the Constitution. I'm positive he's never read it. I'm, I'm certain of it. Um, he doesn't care about norms. He doesn't care about what happens after he leaves office. I mean, frankly, he'd rather just stay in office until he dies and then pass it off to his family. He'd rather a monarchy. Um, but we have to care about these things. And that's why when we talk about Kamala and people's issues with her or issues with Biden, like, do you see what the alternative is? The alternative is not uh, acceptable in any way, shape, or form. This isn't making a choice between two reasonable candidates who have disagreements about legitimate issues. Uh, we're making a choice between whether democracy, um, the American experiment continues, the American experiment with democracy continues, or whether it dies. That's what we're choosing. And it's, it is so painful to watch so many Republicans, ones that know better. Look at you, Marco Rubio. <laughs> Um, call him by name. <laughs> I mean, he deserves to be like people who know better. Ted Cruz, um, like people who know better, and they're going to support this guy because they're afraid of the repercussions, right? But like, you know, the risk you're running, like, and they're not even on the ballot. Like, I get why Lindsey Graham is a coward. Like, he's told us why he's a coward. He he wants to be relevant. He wants to be in the room. Uh, I just, I just, it's really disappointing that, you know, we are the founding fathers. If you believe in, you know, their esteemed wisdom, I do not. But if you do, they couldn't foresee this issue arising that one party would, I know they didn't like political parties and, you know, didn't want them to happen, but couldn't foresee a bunch of people who were so uh, in love with power that they let the country burn. And that's kind of where we are right now. Yeah, it yeah, it, look, I, I also don't know how bad it's going to get, but I, I do know it's going to get worse. I, I, I don't, I mean, I think that everyone should just be on the lookout for, you know, the October surprise, right? I, I don't know what it's going to be this year. Um, I think that, that we had been speculating that it might be some kind of false, you know, coronavirus vaccine. You know, we, we have a vaccine and, you know, all, all the makers of vaccines have come out and said, there's no way we're going to have one before the election. It's just not possible given the phase three studies. Um so I'd be on the lookout for something like that, something that's actually really dangerous, probably um, in that way that probably will be dangerous to the American health. We already see the perpetuation of the issue on the on the postal service um, and the attempt to stop people from voting. Um, so I, I don't I don't know, but I do know that it's not as bad yet as it's going to get. Um, and 
And then even more this is something we talked about on the pod um, briefly, but um, you know, there is a question about whether he will go pace, go peacefully into the night, right? Like, you know, uh, um, secretary uh, Clinton said, you know, we need to come to grips with the reality that he is not going to go peacefully into the night. And I've said that before. And I, and I, again, it's something I hope I'm wrong about. I, you know, I, there are a lot of things that we project on this pod that I hope we're wrong about, but, um, but if this is a close election, you know, if it comes, if it actually comes down to counting melon votes in Pennsylvania and Florida and Arizona and Nevada, and that's really what this election comes down to. Trump has already done everything he can to prime his voters to believe that the election is rigged, it's been stolen, and it's illegitimate. And he's going to do that every single day from now until the election. And if it turns out that it's close, if if we aren't calling Florida at you know eight thirty on election night, um, regardless of the of the mail in votes, if we aren't calling you know you know Pennsylvania same time if it's not just a clear sweep um we're in for a really rough and and potentially the first non-peaceful transfer of power in american history um so we, we will see i think that that's that that's the dark version of i think where we might be headed and i i hope again i hope we're wrong about it but it, it's certainly in it's in view at this point the setup is there as as always, Ed, uh, a shining light of happiness. No, but I, I, I will insert. Uh, he's absolutely right, though. Like he's been, he's been priming yeah. the ground for that. Like he has been. He's. He even came out and said, you know, we should be able to have results on election night, suggesting that if he's up barely on election night and there are a bunch of mail-in votes coming in, he he's going to be like, I'm declaring victory. Those mail-in votes are fraudulent. Like he's been saying the quiet part out loud already, and that's why, like. Unfortunately, too many of us Democrats are counting on a, a large enough margin of victory that that doesn't happen. But we have to be prepared to fight and to say no way and to pressure these cowards like Marco Rubio and Ted Cruz to say, no, this cannot be the way we handle elections. This cannot be the way we transfer power. You need to force this man out. And if he has to be dragged out by the Secret Service, I fully support it. I would love to see him thrown into fall. Marine... To, you see him thrown into Marine One by his fake hair <laughs> and escorted off the grounds. Uh, if, if need be, um, maybe he will surprise me and go gracefully and is only trying to. But I heard uh, John Lovett of uh, Pod Save America said it today, like him tweeting things to delegitimize the election and him saying things to make his loss not seem so bad sound exactly the same. You can't tell the difference. So, yeah. That's true. All right. Well, I will uh, I'll, I'll ask that you guys uh, hit me with your closing arguments for uh, first-time listeners. Closing arguments are when Moon and Ed will talk about things that were just burning and, and on their chest and they wanted to, you know, us to clear out, let them go ISO and, and, and get these buckets. So I will start with, uh, I'll start with you. Bruce. So, yeah, I'm going to start with something we kind of alluded to, um, which is all these terrible arguments I've seen from a very small but loud section of uh, Twitter and or Facebook about uh, Senator Harris's blackness. Um, like, can we just stop? Like, she is of Jamaican and Indian descent. She was born in Oakland. Like, she is black. Like, I get that, you know, she may not be the direct descendant of slaves. I don't, I mean, frankly, I don't care. And that's a discussion that isn't really relevant to what we're talking about. And 
how you're treated in this country when it comes to blackness. Like the only time being a descendant of slaves really matters is when we're talking about reparations and those ain't coming anytime soon. <laughs> so it seems a bit irrelevant to me, but like, let's think about it. You look at her much like, and these are same, the same conversations, but a little more uh, nasty because she's a woman. Uh, then we, that we had about Barack Obama, who is the son of a Kenyan father and a white woman and was born in Hawaii, not, you know, a place where many black people are. Um, but they're, they're, they're much the same about the debate about how black they are. And I really have no patience for these conservative white commentators. Like, excuse, who let you into the chat room, right? <laughs> <laughs> like, when you entered the chat room, we should have been like, what's going on here? <laughs> like, I don't know who let them in. Like, and, and these conversations, when we talk about them, she is a black woman who's lived her whole life black went to a black school, pledged a black sorority. Like what else do you like and has advocated for the interests of black folk? What else? I get that she didn't do everything you wanted. I get that she, she didn't get you everything on your list. She wasn't the best Santa Claus that could be. Uh, but like, what else do you want? Like, and, and blackness should not be subject to that kind of like uh, examination, right? Because um, certainly white people aren't holding like treating black people like that well let me make sure you check all the black boxes <laughs> before i'm in a taxi cab and don't pick you up or don't hire you for a job or don't let you into my school like they're not doing that like so just stop it it's silly it's immaterial at this point um and and like we need to do better and recognize that hey man when it comes to race it's a social construct designed to keep us in the places that we're at um and she like she has lived her whole life writing for us, maybe not perfectly, but I, who amongst us has been um, and just, you know, trying to figure things out the way all of us are. So I just haven't I, I'm tired of it enough. All right. I um, my, mine is mine, mine is, is a little more about payback. Um Cindy McCain tonight is going to do a, I think she has a pre-recorded video where she's going to talk about Biden. Um, and Wait, about, hold on, hold on, hold on. We invited yeah. her too? Oh, we did. We invited her. <laughs> yes, she's a surprise. So I so John McCain's widow, you will remember that John McCain famously got into it with Trump multiple times, but most famously when he voted down the Republican repeal of, of the Affordable Care Act while he was dying of brain cancer. Um, and, uh, and, Trump was not invited to the funeral, um, and there has been significant beef between the McCain family and Trump uh, since, really, John McCain's initial diagnosis, uh, and since you know McCain, uh, Trump first said on the uh, during the primaries or the Republican primaries that he doesn't really like John McCain because he likes people who don't get captured at war, which is one of the most despicable things you could ever say about someone uh, who was a prisoner of war. Um, so tonight, Cindy McCain is going to, I believe, endorse Joe Biden and remind the world what a terrible person Trump is, even to the <laughs> dead. So uh, this is a, this is just a good lesson on payback, people. Look, you know, treat people well. You know, don't 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 be don't be a jerk, and uh, and then you won't have, you know, your party's widow, like the probably the most famous widows in your party. Um, publicly endorsing your opponent. It's just, so uh, it's a lesson. It's a lesson in life. 
Don't question blackness and don't be a jerk. Two solid ways that we get up out of here. Um, as always, guys, thank you so much. Ed, where can, where can people um, listen, uh, go find you on I'm social? at Edward Williams 2 on Twitter and Instagram. And Mood, where can, where can we get uh, more from uh, you? At Mood ESQ on Twitter. As always, guys, thank you. I appreciate it. And listeners, if you don't remember anything else from this, from this episode, remember this. We're going to vote for Biden. <laughs> All right, y'all. Be easy. Take it out.